It feels like he's been here much longer as he fits so well with our division already. Blaine did his undergraduate work at George Washington University and attended medical school at St. George's University. He was in Buffalo for pediatric residency training and recently completed his fellowship training at Texas Children's in Houston, one of the largest pediatric rheumatology programs in the country, a program with broad clinical expertise in many areas, but specifically lupus and autoimmune encephalitis. Blaine has a special interest in advocacy and, addition to, and in addition to other work, he's recently been invited to serve on our National American College Rheumatology Special Committee on Pediatric Rheumatology. Blaine has also demonstrated excellence in education already. This past November at our international rheumatology meeting, he was invited to give an oral presentation describing his work on school nurse education for juvenile arthritis. In addition to all that he has accomplished academically, Blaine is a wonderful and kind person. And if you haven't had the chance to meet and talk with him yet, please make a point to do so. We are so fortunate to have such an all around wonderful person join our division. Today, he will be speaking to us about systemic autoimmune disease, specifically lupus, dermatomyositis, and vasculitis. Please join me in giving Blaine a warm welcome. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for the kind words and introduction. Um, without further ado, we'll get, get rolling here. Uh, so a couple objectives for my talk. I'm gonna try to help us identify red flags from history, physical exam, um, things that are concerning for systemic autoimmune diseases in general and specific diseases as well. We're gonna review some lab tests, so antibodies and other key lab tests that we see in patients with lupus systemic vasculitis and dermatomyositis. And we're gonna review some morbidities and complications of some more common uh, inflammatory diseases, such as Kawasaki disease and HSP or Hinox-Shanline purpura. So I'm gonna go through a couple of scenarios, which we'll come back to a little bit later in the talk, but this is just to give us an idea of how some patients may come to our attention or may uh, come and see you all first before coming to us. So the first one is a 14-year-old female. She's had a two-month history of swollen and tender joints. She tells us that her fingers often turn blue, white, and then red when she gets cold. Last summer, she had a pink rash on her face that popped out after spending an extended period in the sun. And she's noticed that her pee doesn't look quite the same as it used to. It seems to be much darker and bubbly. And uh, also, she's missed her period for the last couple months. So she clearly knows something's not right. The second child, this is a seven-year-old Caucasian female. For the past few weeks, she's required help getting out of bed in the morning. Um, parents note that she's developed some uh, strange rash described as red or purple on her face and hands. Um, they've seen several doctors and just thought it was possibly a flare of her eczema. And for the past two days, she's even been choking on food. And even some people have noticed that her voice seems to sound funny. The next kiddo is, this is a two-year-old male. He came in to the ER with nine days of fever, some red eyes, and some swelling of his feet. He was found to be in shock when he arrived and required aggressive fluid resuscitation and even vasoactive support. He had an echocardiogram done, which showed myocarditis, mitral valve regurgitation, and a dilated right coronary artery, 
and left anterior descending artery. His labs were impressively elevated inflammatory markers, low platelets, low albumin, and low sodium. And the last one is an eight-year-old male who had two weeks uh, prior upper respiratory tract infection, and then he developed some red spots on his legs. He complains of some belly pain, kind of crampy, that's been worsening over the past few days. And today, it significantly worsened, and he's had vomiting with blood streaks. So we'll pause on those clinical cases and come back to them. Um, so as you can see, there can be different features based on the diseases, but there's always often some red flags from our history and exam. And this is just, just usually people don't think of rheumatology as having emergent um, sort of critical uh, diseases, but sometimes kids can be, um, there can be often delay in diagnosis or sometimes things can be more fulminant and come to our attention quicker. So what are some red flags? Um, if there's involvement of multiple organ systems, so pulmonary and renal dysfunction simultaneously, arthritis and serositis or inflammation of the pleura or pericardium, and lupus, some people will call it the great imitator. It can do everything. Some of my um, uh, attendings and fellowships said, you've seen one lupus patient, you've seen one lupus patient. Not, no two patients look the same. Uh, if we have refractory Raynaud's phenomenon, you know, Raynaud's can be common, and, um, but if it's not getting better, not rewarming easily, that's certainly something to be concerned about. Cytopenias with two cell lines, many of our diseases can have abnormal blood counts. Pneumonia, if that doesn't respond to antibiotics or just doesn't seem typical. Overwhelming inflammation that's not easily explained. Proximal muscle weakness, so change in activities of daily living, things such simple as brushing the hair, getting out of bed, carrying a bed, um, or CNS dysfunction. These all can be red flags heralding systemic autoimmunities. So we order a lot of tests. Sometimes there can be some um, questions as what do they all mean? How do they help you uh, help us in making a diagnosis? And so I'm just gonna review some of our common lab tests and how they relate to the workup and diagnosis. So ANA, probably this is just review for everyone, but just to go through it quickly, stands for anti-nuclear antibody. It's basically just detection of autoantibodies that bind to contents in the cell nucleus. It can be positive or negative, and there can be a tighter value. Uh, the higher the tighter, the more strongly positive uh, the autoantibodies. So 1 to 40 and 1 to 80, uh, although it's technically positive, it's almost a false positive, and positive is greater that we think of is greater than 1 to 160 or 1 to 320. And there can be patterns associated with the staining pattern, but they can often be variable. Important to remember that 10 to 30% of healthy children can have a positive, low positive ANA, and it may not have clinical significance in the absence of other important features, which we have and we'll, we'll talk about. And then there are specific autoantibodies that are, um, in, that are seen in, the, in systemic autoimmune diseases. The Smith antibody or anti-Smith antibody is most specific for lupus and double-stranded DNA antibodies 
sometimes we'll track with disease activity and we'll monitor it over time. And these are some of the staining patterns. Uh, so getting into some of the specific autoantibodies, lupus, like I mentioned, double-stranded DNA antibody or anti-Smith antibody, uh, Sjogren's syndrome or SSA, SSB, anti-Rho, anti-Lo, these antibodies um, can be seen in isolation in primary Sjogren's syndrome, and Sjogren's syndrome can pr be present as a part of other systemic autoimmune diseases, most commonly lupus. Uh, mixed connective tissue disease has a very specific autoantibody or RNP, and then antiphospholipid antibodies Antiphospholipid syndrome also can be primary and can be by itself, or it can be a component of other systemic autoimmune disease, most commonly lupus. And here you can see a rheumatoid factor. And so rheumatoid factor, this is the IG, most commonly IgM antibody directed at portions of IgG. And it basically forms immune complexes that deposit in synovial tissue and trigger inflammation. It's associated with a more um, aggressive chronic juvenile arthritis. But notably, it's only really seen in a small fraction of kids with, with JA and more specifically those with polyarticular disease. So it's not common and it's usually in the teenager that has kind of a symmetric um, small joint disease. So back to our scenarios. So this is the 14 year old female who had the two month history of of symptoms. So this is lupus. Here you can see a picture of a malar rash. Um, important to, to review that it spares the nasal labial folds. And here's a palatal ulcer. Sometimes they're not this impressive. It can be more subtle um, and it's uh, usually painless. So parents and children may often not even know it's there. So this is a busy slide, but it's really just here. As I said, lupus can be the great imitator. There's a lot of different things that lupus can do and children can be very sick. And this is just to say that it can involve multiple organ systems. Um, and so when we hear about a kid with a known lupus patient who has fever or chest pain or severe intractable headache or swelling, oftentimes we're sending them to the ER um, and if there's a kiddo that is in the, your office or in the emergency room that has symptoms don't either don't make sense or symptoms out of portion, I'm forgetting to think about this. Uh, this is kind of the new criteria that just came out from our American College of Rheumatology in conjunction with the European Society. It may not project uh, very big on the slide here, but it's just to show kind of what goes in uh, to our making the diagnosis of lupus, you have to have a positive ANA greater than or equal to one to 80 to start going down the criteria. And then you get points for different features, some being clinical features like fever or hematologic abnormalities, uh, neuropsychiatric symptoms, um, rashes, serositis, arthritis, and kidney disease. And then there are immunologic features, antiphospholipid antibodies, low complements, so C3 or C4, and SLE-specific antibodies, which are the, the double-stranded DNA or the Smith. And you have to have a score of at least 10 to make a diagnosis. Uh, so shifting gears a little bit, Kawasaki disease. 
Uh, this is a, just a review of the criteria, so complete versus incomplete. Um, sometimes we'll hear incomplete versus atypical, those terms used interchangeably. Really, they're not the same. We Incomplete refers to a child who has suspected Kawasaki, but is not meeting the typical complete criteria, which you see on the left-hand side. Um, and then this algorithm in the American um, Heart Association 2017 paper helps uh, clinicians kind of go through the algorithm as to whether once there's suspicion of Kawasaki based on lab tests, whether echocardiogram and eventual treatment should be undertaken. And so here are some pictures that kind of go with Kawasaki. You can see the rash on the top left. The rash in Kawasaki can take many forms. We usually don't think of it as being vesicular, um, but it can be more macular, more papular, more hive-like. You see the non-limbic, uh, the limbic sparing conjunctivitis or, and the strawberry tongue and the red cracked fissured lips. Uh, the bottom left picture is trying to show a patient with swelling of the hands. So it can be swelling of the hands or the feet. You see the uh, large lymphadenopathy in the middle right. And then of course, the more serious complications, which are the, uh, the artery aneurysms. So there can be coronary artery aneurysms, obviously um, a significant proportion if left untreated. Luckily we have IVIG, which if given promptly within the first 10 days of illness, reduces the risk of coronary artery aneurysms to below 10%. Um, but here you can see some from 3D reconstruction, some abnormalities or aneurysms in the coronary arteries. And also, you can see peripheral artery aneurysms in Kawasaki disease. Oftentimes, we're not looking for those. I'm going to talk about a um, review in a minute, kind of when we should be uh, suspecting or worried for those and when we should be looking for those. But here you can see a child with arteries, um, aneurysms in the brachial arteries bilaterally. So uh, this is a not a... Uh, it's kind of a play on words, but Kawasaki or Kawasaki shock syndrome. So this is a two-year-old, the two-year-old male came in with nine days of fever, had the typical Kawasaki features of red eyes and swelling of his feet, didn't really necessarily fit a complete criteria, but he came in, he was really ill and he was in shock, he required significant fluid resuscitation and even some vasoactive support. And the echocardiogram certainly was not normal, both with aneurysms as well as decreased function. And labs showed elevated inflammatory markers consistent with the overwhelming inflammatory process. But there were some things that maybe didn't fit or with the typical schema of Kawasaki. So low platelets um, and low albumin and low sodium. So Kawasaki, uh, the pathophysiology is thought to be a decreased peripheral vascular resistance and a decreased left ventricular contractility. The incidence in, of Kawasaki shock syndrome is estimated to be about 7%. And there, it seems that it's an overwhelming cytokine storm caused by endogenous molecules that then decrease peripheral vascular resistance and lead to myocardial dysfunction. There may be myocarditis with or without ischemia and then a capillary leak. And there, the shock can be cardiogenic or distributive or mixed. 
And really the severe inflammation leads to the higher risk of coronary artery dilation. These kiddos are more likely to have resistance to IVIG and require escalation of anti-inflammatory or immunomodulatory therapy. We may also see low platelets. So typically you think of high platelets or a part of the acute inflammatory response, but these kiddos may have low platelets in the acute period. And this is often associated with more severe disease and development of the coronary artery aneurysms. So it's important to recognize the kid that comes in with shock that may not be the typical um, sort of typical infectious uh, flavor and prompt recognition and diagnosis of Kawasaki leading to prompt therapy with IVIG. And then of course, management of shock. Um, other folks can do that better than I can, um, but just making sure not to overload or give too, many, too much fluids just because of the capillary leak. Um, and then early echocardiogram, obviously that's important, but it's not, should not delay treatment. Um, and then often, they, like I said, these children may require additional anti-inflammatory therapy. Uh, so this is a recent study, came out in pediatrics uh, just this month, and it looked at 162 patients, and they looked back over three years um, to kind of evaluate for systemic artery involvement in those with Kawasaki. And they found that the median age at onset of Kawasaki disease with systemic artery aneurysms was five months, so really little kids. And they all, all the patients who had systemic artery aneurysms also had coronary artery aneurysms, and most of them had uh, Z-scores, so very large coronary artery aneurysms, greater than Z-score of eight. The most common sites they found were for the systemic aneurysms were axillary, common iliac, and brachial arteries. And they found that luckily, most of the aneurysms regressed and up to 80% returned to normal and follow-up. And so we're not often looking for systemic aneurysms in most of our patients with Kawasaki, but we should have a higher index of suspicion for those with uh, large or giant aneurysms. And a couple other papers by um, Xiao and colleagues, these are also um, just in the last couple months. And they're kind of looking at whether there's biomarkers that can be used as sort of prognostic indicators. They may not be ready for prime time, um, but one of them is procalcitonin. And they found that that was literally linked with IVIG resistance. Um, and the other one being pro-BNP. And they found that there were higher levels of pro-BNP in those children with IVIG resistance. And this kind of makes sense if those are the kids that have Kawasaki shock and have cardiac dysfunction um, and they're needing additional therapy to quell their inflammatory cascade. Um, there's questions of the role for infliximab or anti-TNF alpha therapy. The recent review um, that came out, it kind of looked at those children with IVIG failure. They looked at a good number of kids, almost 400 kids over eight studies, and those most of them received a second dose of IVIG, but they found that fever resolution is comparable between IVIG and those treated with IV methylprednisolone or systemic corticosteroids. And they looked at those that compared with those who received infliximab, and they found that infliximab significantly increased fever resolution by approximately 20% compared to those who are IVIG redosed or received the standard 
second dose of IVIG for fever after the first dose. Um, but they concluded that the role for infliximab in coronary artery aneurysms remained unclear. Uh, there is a Japanese study or the Sakura study, which actually looked at the safety um, and efficacy of infliximab. Um, we, there's a lot more kids with Kawasaki in Japan, uh, it's where it's first discovered. And they actually have IV, uh, infliximab approved for Kawasaki disease as of 2015. They give a single dose of five milligrams per kilogram after the initial therapy failure. And they found that similarly, fever reduction rate within 48 hours of infliximab um, was pretty good. Um, and, but they did find that the incidence um, and severity of coronary artery aneurysms did not change following infliximab therapy. They found a low uh, percentage of adverse and serious drug reactions. So it seems that it's safe um, and it will help reduce or uh, resolve the fever or the inflammatory cascade, but it may not uh, treat the coronary artery aneurysms. So switching gears again, let's talk a little bit about HSP or hinox shanlang purpura. So going back to our cases, this is the eight-year-old male who came in with one week of skin rash. It started on his legs and spread proximally to the buttocks and upper extremities. He also complained of some pain and some swelling of his ankles and some colicky sort of intermittent abdominal pain, but that's gotten worse on the days preceding his arrival. And now he's unable to take anything by mouth. So he came in, his parents brought him in with severe abdominal pain and some hematochesia and hematemesis. So here's a nice picture of HSP rash. This is a, looks like it's more of a, almost more of a crusting or a bullous form. It's not often, often not this impressive. So HSP by definition, 100% with palpable purpura of the lower extremities. It should not include thrombocytopenia. And you may also see a mix of purpura and petechiae. Commonly, children will complain of joint pain and this may be due to periarticular soft tissue swelling or true arthritis, and it's usually involving the large joints of the lower extremities, such as the ankles and the knees. Also common is abdominal pain, uh, can be around half of children, and sometimes it's, very, it's vague and mild, um, sometimes it's less or more severe. Uh, it may come with nausea, and in rare cases, GI bleeding, intussusception, infarction, or perforation, of the GI tract if there's a significant gastrointestinal vasculitis. So the pathophysiology, this is an IgA vasculitis. There's immune complexes with IgA deposition, and you can see that if you biopsy skin or kidneys. Um, a large fraction of children may have kidney involvement. This is usually within the first six months, uh, seen as proteinuria or hematuria or hypertension there may have nephritic or nephrotic uh, um, proteinuria. This is why we recommend screening for the first six months, more frequently at the beginning and then less frequently up to six months. Over 90% of kidney disease will come up in the first six months. So if you screen up to six months and there's no uh, kidney disease, you're pretty much in the clear. So some tips, I like to say avoiding NSAIDs if there's GI involvement. NSAIDs by themselves can cause some GI upset. And if there's already belly pain, this may cloud the picture. Ultrasounds are helpful to rule out intussusception. 
And if there's severe GI involvement with um, <laughs> inability to tolerate oral intake or intussusception, it's important to give the gut time to heal. And so this is best accomplished with bowel rest, IV fluids, and then slow advancement of diet. Um, where I trained, we had a QI project that involved uh, HSP diet. Um, we tried to uh, help the dietitians create a protocol to avoid heavy, rich, spicy, sugary foods with the thought that if we avoid those foods, which may cause extra stress to the GI tract, require extra blood flow to help with digestion, if we eliminate that extra strain, it will give the gut vasculature time to heal. Um, and then, of course, steroids for severe involvement. Important to remember that steroids do not prevent kidney disease, and there's a lot of studies that, that support this. And then, like I mentioned, weekly urine and blood pressure checks, we really rely on our partners in the community to help us with this. And then rare complications of HSP, testicular um, involvement such as orchitis, um, CNS rarely um, for, from hypertension there can be press or posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome or CNS hemorrhage and lungs rarely pulmonary hemorrhage from uh, pulmonary vasculitis. So a couple reviews uh, regarding HSP. Um, there's increased risk of HSP in Mediterranean populations and so there's a lot of literature that comes out of that part of the world. Uh, so a Turkish study looked at 99 children over two years and they found that they were looking at recurrence rate of HSP and they, looked, they defined recurrence as patients who are asymptomatic for at least one month off medication who came in with a new flare of either skin or other systemic features. And they found that the recurrent risk of HSP was 17 fold in children who had four organ systems. So sort of didn't just have isolated um, skin disease, but skin, joints, kidney, and GI. Another review over three years involving over 400 patients, they were looking at uh, kind of the different features and they found that renal involvement with biopsy proving nephritis was highest in patients with severe GI involvement. And it's maybe kind of intuitive that if you have more severe disease, you're more likely to have more organ systems involved. And then lastly, uh, just a, a review kind of looking at treatment options for HSP. Oftentimes it's just supportive care and symptoms will revolve, re resolve on their own. Um, but if we see severe skin involvement with bullous or necrotic rash with skin integrity at risk, there may be a role for corticosteroids or that should be first line. Uh, Dapsone or azathioprine have been used and have anecdotally um, proven to be useful. Musculoskeletal, I mentioned NSAIDs avoiding with GI um, involvement, but if without belly pain or with very minor colicky belly pain, NSAIDs can be great for arthralgias or arthritis. Um, and then gas GI symptoms, steroids are gonna be first line for severe GI disease. Uh, gut rest is important. And then there's a lot of smattering of different reports of more um, intensive immunosuppressive or immunomodulatory therapy, depending on how severe the GI disease as well. Um, and then renal involvement, obviously the first uh, key is kind of screening for um, renal disease. And they just, just, just to take on point, um, there's really no way to prevent renal involvement. They've done many large randomized control trials to see if their role for steroids in preventing it. But unfortunately, it, it doesn't seem to help.
Uh, so just going to touch on some of the other systemic vasculitides. And um, this is just a nice cartoon showing the different um, artery, capillary, vein, venules, and looking at where different vasculitis occurs. And you can see IgA vasculitis or HSP is kind of the very small arteries. And then in um, comparison to Kawasaki is going to be your medium-sized vessels and large vessels, Takayasu. Um, we don't see giant cell arteries in children. And then your Inca vasculitides are also going to be the small or microscopic vessels. And so some of the systemic or Inca-associated vasculitides also have um, characteristic autoantibodies. So Inca is your anti-neutrophilic cytoplasmic antibodies. And then there's specific autoantibodies or MPO or myeloperoxidase antibody that goes with MPA or microscopic polyangitis or C-ANCA, which is a PR3 antibody, and that's associated with granulomatosis with polyangitis. Um, some of us also know it as Wegner's or EGPA, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangitis, and this is the old Church Strauss. And here you can see the, um, the P-ANCA and the C-ANCA staining patterns. And just some um, nice pictures. And so I mentioned one of the red flags being that pneumonia that just won't go away with antibiotics or the child who has um, respiratory involvement as well as kidney involvement, so the pulmonary renal syndrome. And here you can see some consolidations from chest CT of an individual, a GPA. And then switching gears a little bit here, you can see some renal artery lesions, um, dilatations from some individual with polyarthritis nodosa. And then Takayasu arteritis, you can see some involvement or dilatation from the large vessels coming off the, corner, the, the heart. So uh, last um, entity to touch on is dermatomyositis. So this is a child who comes in with the chief complaint of I can't get out of bed, I keep choking, and my eczema is flaring. So for the past two weeks, she's required help getting out of bed in the morning. She developed a red-purple rash on the hands and the face. Unfortunately, they've tried various over-the-counter or topical medicines with um, poor response. And for the past two days, she was choking on food, and some people even noticed her voice sounded sort of nasally or, or muted. Uh, so. Juvenile dermatomyositis is one of the juvenile idiopathic inflammatory myopathies. It's quite rare. The incidence is somewhere around 2.5 per million per year. And the mean age of diagnosis is around seven years. There can be often delays in diagnosis just because it may have an indolent um, evolution. And oftentimes as the rashes are coming out, they may be mistaken for more common etiologies. Unlike adults, juvenile dermatomyositis is not associated with malignancy, and we typically do not screen for such in our workup. Um, the hallmark is going to be proximal muscle weakness and a characteristic skin rash and usually increased serum muscle enzymes. And I say usually because I'm going to touch on that point in a moment. And the characteristic rashes, the Gotrans papules, which I'll show a picture of, and the heliotrope rash, there may be skin ulcers or nail cold capillary changes. You'll see us often look at the skin right as it approaches the nail bed to look at the nail cold capillaries. 
and then calcinosis or calcium deposits, which are in the subcutaneous tissue, which may be asymptomatic or may cause tenderness or even extrude from the skin. Um, and then atypical features or complications, like I mentioned, there may actually be an absence of muscle involvement in certain flavors of JDM. There may be lung disease, it's usually an interstitial lung disease, GI involvement, arthritis, or cardiac and neurologic manifestations, rarely. So muscle enzymes, some of them we can get from a complete metabolic panel. So your AST and ALT, your, your classic liver enzymes, and then CK, LDH, and aldolase are also elevated with muscle inflammation. MRIs are very helpful and have sort of changed the way we diagnose juvenile dermatomyositis over the last number of years. The MRIs of the pelvis can help us evaluate for proximal muscle weakness, looking at the musculature of the pelvis and the thighs. And with that sort of become sort of taken away from the role of EMG and biopsy, at least in more straightforward cases. However, if there's question, certainly those can be important, especially to rule out other causes of myopathy, such as metabolic or mitochondrial myopathies. And then myositis-specific autoantibodies are not necessarily part of the diagnostic criteria, but can be helpful for prognosis and thinking about other atypical features. This is also a, sort of a busy slide with a lot of information, but I've tried to highlight a few. So at the top, you, at the, across, you can see some of the autoantibodies that are associated with JDM. And you can see that the anti-P155-140 autoantibody, there's a high percentage of those individuals who have calcinosis. You can see the antisynthetase or JO1 antibody as uh, involvement of interstitial lung disease. And then the uh, other thing to highlight is the anti-SRP autoantibody has a very significant weakness. Um, and then the anti-CADM140 or MDA5, as it's also known, is also associated with interstitial lung disease. And these children may actually have amyopathic disease, so as to say there's no involvement of muscle inflammation, no muscle weakness. <coughs> Here you can see the typical Gottron's papules sort of present as erythema over the MCPs and PIPs. And you can see some of the periungal erythema. And here are the, some nail fold capillary changes. And some proximal muscle inflammation on MRI seen in the quadriceps muscles. And some calcinosis. So this is um, on x-ray. So just to wrap up some take-home points, history and physical is key to our diagnosis. The lab testing can be helpful, often as supporting information, but we really try to glean a lot of information um, from our history and physical exam. There may be uncommon presentations or features of rare diseases that can be, help us narrow down the differential or um, think about whether the child needs to be seen urgently. And if there are any red flags or no improvement with routine care, trying to expand the differential to include autoimmune disease, and please don't hesitate to call us. We're happy to see anybody. And these are my references. Thank you. Thank you. That was an excellent overview. Uh, we have plenty of time for questions. Does anyone have anything?
Um, of the disease presented, HSP is probably one as a general pediatrician we see the most of. Sure. Um, and I was surprised that you said 100% have papular purpura early, maybe eventually during the disease process, but yeah. early on. They may not be at onset. They may present with belly pain or arthralgias exactly. before the purpura. Yeah, and, and that the petechia and lead is Subtle, I, I agree with you. I have, have to happen. Um, and, and the other question, two other questions. One is, is that um, I follow for six months. I have seen well over 50 cases of HSP. Um, and I have never seen anybody have any renal involvement after the first month. I'm not sure why I keep following them. Yeah, I, I, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, I, I, don't, I don't know where the data comes from that. I just, it maybe it's paranoia on nephrologists, but I, I just, I, I don't know why we do that. Yeah, I guess I, we have to look more at the data to see in the breakdown of the six months of most of it's coming within the first month or how, what percentage comes, you know, in the later months. I'm not sure that I could comment on that further. Okay. The, the third question is always in the world of medicine, steroids is a yes and a no and who knows yeah, question. Um, I think that the data is, as you said, is clear that it does not help with renal involvement. But I do think that if somebody has severe abdominal pain, I think that, that, that prednisone has, the, has some significant advantages of decreasing that, sure, that I pain. Agree. And I guess my question is, what criteria do you use? What I do if, if the pain is not so bad, I try and stay away from it. But if they're really uncomfortable that I, I use prednisone, is that a reasonable thought process? That sounds reasonable. I don't know that I, it's sometimes more of a gestalt and I don't know that there's like a specific criteria, but certainly if it's, um, if there's an inability to tolerate oral intake, I mean, then they're coming into the hospital, but if they have sort of mild to moderate belly pain that is managed as an outpatient, certainly some steroids can be helpful, but we're certainly happy to see those kids as well. And give our input what, what dosage you use and how long you treat for so usually use between one to two milligrams per kilogram but it, once you start them on steroids it's usually a good idea to do a real slow taper we found that a lot of our kids if they're tapered off too quickly will have rebound uh, symptoms go ahead bill I don't know what it stands for, or I could look it up, but SUPAR, are you familiar with that? It's an inflammatory, uh, uh, inflammatory marker, apparently. Um, but there are all these new inflammatory markers that are coming out, being seen in things like, well, ACEs, chronic pain, chronic fatigue. So when will we be able to send all those patients to the rheumatologist to treat? <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I missed the, what was the name of the marker that you Supar, S-U-P-A-R. I can, it's no, some I'm not kind familiar of, with that. I would love to learn right. more about it, but I haven't heard about so it. So just in general, inflammatory markers, and are there going to be new understanding of some of these diseases that we didn't used to think were inflammatory in nature, and your thoughts on that? Um, yes, I think there we are constantly learning things about new markers, um, some of even the diseases that we already know, I would say a lot about, there's new markers that are coming up. One example would be systemic arthritis. We're now learning about new biomarkers, like different um, interleukin levels, like IL-18 that can track with, with disease. Um, but there's um, obviously other 
less common, less bread and butter rheumatologic diseases that are probably have significant involvement of the inflammatory inflammasome. Um, so we're constantly learning. Go ahead. <laughs> so achy, tired children um, don't fit some of the classic uh, diseases that you describe. Um, I was wondering if you had a little um, uh, advice on what we in primary care might be able to order is lab or markers that will either reassure the fit or that they have to go to each. Well, I think I can, I mean, ruling out common causes of fatigue and achiness. I mean, I would always, I would check a blood count, making sure there's no anemia, checking thyroid, making sure that's not out of whack. Um, you can always check inflammatory markers or if you're seeing myalgia, check like a CK, make sure there's no muscle inflammation. I think if you've done those things, blood counts, um, liver and kidney, thyroid, inflammatory markers, and those are all normal. Um, not, you know, never say never, but that's, those are all very reassuring things. So ANA, I would be careful with, um, I mean, obviously high titer is maybe somebody that, you know, is something is brewing or is something is a cult. The number of kids that have ANA of one to 40 or one to 80 or achy, that's, I mean, it's, that can be low positive or in health, completely healthy kids. I, I think I said somewhere between 10 to 30%. And then rheumatoid factor, uh, it's really a very small subset of our kids, who, even who have polyarticular JIA. So, and very low positive rheumatoid factor. If they were sick when the blood was drawn, you may get a, a false positive of that. So I guess I would be careful in sending that some of those tests, but just kind of with a grain of salt. Yeah. But those are certainly children that are challenging. <laughs> great. Thank you for that excellent talk and great questions. Have a good day. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>